0: Lord, that's our our prayer this morning, that you would keep us near to you. Lord, there's no other place we'd rather be, no other place we need to be. And so, Father, we ask as we go to your word, again, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Let Make your word come alive to us. We know it's living and breathing, Lord. Just minister to each heart. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Now this morning, this morning we're in a uh, transitional chapter. If you've been with us going through the book of Revelation, you know that the outline for the book of Revelation is found in Revelation 119, and we'll get to that in a moment. But chapter 1 is the things which were... That's uh, John looking back at the things that already had taken place, and we see Jesus in heaven. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are, and then we get to chapter 4, through the rest of the book, we're going to see the things which are to come. And so this is a transitional point, um, and we're only going to look, we're not going to, we're going to pick up the pace next week, I promise. We're going to only look at a few verses this morning, uh, because it really is a, a pivotal point in understanding the rapture of the church. And understanding the focal point in heaven when we just look at the first three verses. So again, apocalypsis is the unveiling. This is the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole letter is about, getting to know Jesus better. Again, he's no longer a baby in a manger or a savior hanging on a cross. While both of those things are very important, that's not Jesus where Jesus is anymore he is in heaven he is victorious risen and living savior and again he is all powerful sovereign lord and god and he dwells in heaven in the midst of his people in the midst of his people and we know this he is clothed with a garment down to his feet he is girded about the chest with a golden band this is description of revelation chapter 1 his head and hair are, are white like wool and is as white as snow and his eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass as if refined in the furnace and his voice is as the sound of many waters. He has in his right hand the seven stars and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and in his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. When John, his beloved disciple, saw Jesus in this state, he fell over like a dead man. Because to be in the presence of our Lord in his glorified state, we are brought to the end of ourselves. But then I love what Jesus does. He lays his hand on John and says to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and of the keys to Hades and of death. So that brought us to chapter three where he addressed the seven churches. That's the church age. The church age began when Jesus ascended into heaven and it ends when he raptures the church. So we're in the church age right now. He was speaking to seven uh, first century churches, but they all apply to us today. And we saw his character unveiled as he encouraged the churches where they were doing well, but he rebuked them where they were falling short. And doesn't he do the same thing to us by his Holy Spirit every single day? What's the answer? And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he loves us enough to discipline us to get us back in line when we wander away? So we see both his holiness and his grace and that he judges righteously and he suffers long. You know, God is not fooled by the outward appearance and those churches found out in a hurry cuz most of them to the world looked really good outwardly they had all the activity and everything going on but the lord looked past the activity to their heart and to their character he rebuked 5 of the churches ephesus pergamus thyatira sardis and laodicea and he encouraged those who were faithful in character smyrna and philadelphia and so again we see his character and we see his heart in the way that he reveals himself and speaks to the churches now we're going to see some more of his character today as we get a picture of the rapture and while your eschatology and that's just a big word for end times view the way you look at the end times well that's a secondary issue i do believe that the way we look at it and the way i believe is true and i believe that most of you when you leave here this morning if you're on the fence if this doesn't convince you Nothing will, but this is so clear to me that it is a pre-tribulational rapture. And again, it's a secondary issue. We can agree to disagree on that. It's not essential to go to heaven, but you're going to get raptured pre-trib anyway, so you might as well start believing it now. Amen. <laughs> but just <the> re- <laughs> pastor. Okay, sorry. But here the reality is that we we get a taste, I believe, of the character of our God when we recognize the pre-tribulational rapture. Because God has not appointed us to wrath. And he's not a God who rains down his righteous judgment upon his children. Now what I mean by that is, he will and does discipline us to restore us. But when he comes to bring righteous judgment upon a rebellious world, he's going to remove his church first. And we'll see that in this morning's text. So too, this morning, we're going to see, uh, spend some time not only about the rapture of the church, but the prep, as we prepare for communion, we're going to focus on the one who sits on the throne in heaven. Guys, heaven, the focal point is we're going to see this morning of heaven is the throne and the one who sits on the throne. And he's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who sent his son to die for us. And he is the focal point in heaven. Now next week we'll look at what goes on around the throne, what's before the throne, but this morning we're going to focus on who's on the throne. So if you're a note taker this morning, I titled the message, A Glimpse Into Heaven. A Glimpse Into Heaven. What we learn about our God. As we look into heaven, we're going to learn more things about the God that we serve. First of all, he, re- he rescues us before he pours out his righteous judgment. Secondly, He is the focal point in heaven, and then finally, he is sovereign in his power and faithful in his promises. That means he's God, he's in control, he can do anything, but because he is God, he will not do anything that is contrary to what he has already promised us. We can trust him to be faithful to his promises, amen? All right, now. Like I said, I'm going to take a few moments and, again, talk about the rapture because after almost every service for the last several weeks, I've had people come up to me and say, I can't wait till you get to chapter 4 because I want to talk about the rapture. I thought, okay, well, I better address it now or I'll be talking to all of you during the Agape Feast. So let's just do this. All right? Now, there are three primary views on the rapture. There's post-tribulational view, which simply means that There are the people who believe that the church will go through the seven-year tribulation and at the end of which the church at the second coming of Christ will then be removed from the earth. There is a mid-tribulational view which believes that we will go through three and a half years, the first half of the tribulation, and we will then be removed before the greatest amount of judgment comes. So we will endure some of it, but not all of it. And then finally, there's the pre-tribulational rapture, where the church is raptured out prior to God pouring out his righteous judgment upon the earth. There's a fourth view that doesn't believe in the tribulation at all. Have you ever heard the term preterist? Okay, I know know I'm trying not to get too theological here this morning, but the term preterist, they simply mean it already took place. So in their mind, we already went through the book of Revelation. Seriously, I'm not kidding. And there's some people that I trust and I love that are Bible scholars that believe that. But I believe after chapter 4, verse 1, we should walk out of here not believing that anymore if you do. And even if you do, it's a secondary issue. Let's not divide over it. We're all family, right? Amen. We're one in Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Those are the essentials. But again, this is going to be a little more uh, theological than the task. Now, Revelation 119, I mentioned before, is where we get the outline for the book of Revelation. And he says, the things which are, the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And the things which are to come The word there is metatauta in Greek. Now, why is that significant? Because we're going to see that same word used again, referring to the end of the church age and in the beginning of chapter 4 going forward to chapter 19. And that is the great tribulation. Chapter four through 19 is where we see the great tribulation. So the things which you have seen, Jesus in heaven, the things which are the church age that we're living in now, and the things which are to come, we will see in the, in the chapters going forward. So look at verse one there. It says after, this is Revelation four, after these things, same word as at the end of Revelation 19, after these things, it's meta tauta." That means there's a direct correlation between Revelation 1.19 at the end of the church age and this new phase that comes through after these things. And now we see it being tied in to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. There's a clear connection between the transition from the church age and this time that we see here. Now, after the things that are... There are the things which are to come. So chapter four, verses, uh, chapter four through 19 speak of future events. The time of the great tribulation where well, God will pour out his righteous wrath upon the earth. The great tribulation will last for seven years. It's the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, I don't want to get people a headache, but you go back to Daniel, and he talks about the 70 weeks of Daniel, 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. The 70th week of Daniel, the final seven-year period, is known as the Great Tribulation. Now, who's going to be here during the Great Tribulation? I believe all who have rejected God. Now, all those who have rejected God, imagine what the world will be like when in the twinkling of an eye, the church disappears. The bride of Christ is no longer here, and you can debate this point, certainly to a great extent, the Holy Spirit is pretty much vanished from the face of the earth. Now we look at the world we live in today, with believers here and a remnant here, and we see the evil that goes on, imagine what it's going to be like when God just lets it go. And then, in the midst of that, he begins to bring righteous judgment upon the earth. And we'll see his judgment come in the form of seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments. Now, chapters four and five, we're going to get a glimpse into heaven. We're going to see the scene in heaven when, before the judgment of God is poured out, or during the time it's about to be poured out. That's the next couple of weeks. And then we get to chapter six, we're going to see what will happen when his judgment is poured out, and it's heavy. I'm thanking God I'm not going to be here. Now, here's the good news. Those who are here, I believe. Now, people say, why doesn't God just smoke the earth and be done with it? Why would he pour out his judgment? Why would he go through seven years of doing this? Let me tell you why. Because he's a gracious God. He's giving people an opportunity to be saved one last time. That's the God we serve. Aren't you glad he reached out to you one more time? And so this is what is happening and this is an opportunity for people to come to know Christ. And then finally in chapters 20 to 22, we're going to see the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and the eternal state. Looking forward to it. Now Matthew 24 says this, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall there ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Some people say for the elect's sake, that means we're in the tribulation. The elect, I believe, again, speaks of the tribulation saints and could even be pointing to the Jews. Because many Jews will be saved during the great tribulation. God's not done with them yet. First Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he's pouring out his wrath, he has not appointed us to wrath. I know I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit, but I want us to walk out of here with clarity about the, about the tribulation. First Thessalonians says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He we delivers us from the wrath to come. God's, and and you've got to understand, the 1 Thessalonians, that's one of the main topics. Now when we get to Revelation chapter 6, it's going to talk about the wrath of the Lamb. Now, it's pretty hard to get a lamb angry, right? Pretty hard. But who's the lamb of God? Jesus Christ. And he has suffered long, but he won't suffer always, and his wrath is coming. But it's only coming after he has reached out again and again and again and again and again. It's been said that no one will go to hell unless they run over the cross of Calvary to get there. He's, his desire is that none should perish, no, not one. He reaches out to all of mankind, but man continues to reject him. It says in, in Revelation 6, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And I want you to know the word wrath there. There's two words for wrath in Greek, main words. And one of them speaks of a slow, building up, prepared anger. And the other one, thumos, is like you know, blowing a head gasket, which none of you have ever done, right? But you go from you know, calm to angry like that. I've been guilty of that. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of anger it's talking about here with our God. Our God has been patient. It amazes me how patient our God is. How about you? It amazes me how patient he's been with me, let alone looking at the world around us who continues to reject him and how patient he remains. You know, there's no hot-headedness in our God. Think about what the Lord sees every day. Have you ever thought about that? He looks down upon the world and what does he see every single day? He sees rape murder children being abused he sees every violent crime every time his name is blasphemed every dollar that is made by those who glorify sin and evil all the rebellion every hard heart i am amazed by the incredible grace and mercy of our god that he's wait still and you may be sitting here wondering why does he wait why does he wait why can't he just come and get us now he's perfect holy god looking at the sinful world, what is he waiting for? Let me tell you what he's waiting for. The fullness of the Gentiles. You know what that means? That means when the last person is saved, who is going to be saved, then it's, we're out of here. So if you're holding this up this morning, (laughs) repent, amen? It's time to get right with the Lord. If he's waiting for you, let's be busy about it. I'm ready for heaven. I don't know about you guys. The fullness of the Gentiles. And then he will unleash his holy wrath. And even in that, it's his desire that people would be saved. It says in Romans 2, he'll rent it to everyone according to his deeds. He suffers long, but he won't suffer always. And don't mistake God's patience for God's permission. Amen. Well, I haven't got caught yet. Well, I haven't gotten in trouble yet. God's patience is not God's permission. He is waiting for those who have yet to be saved, and I'm glad he waited for me. So in this morning's text, we're transitioning from that church age to the things which are after this, and again, we're going to get a glimpse into heaven, and we're going to get to see when those, what those things take place. Now, before we look at heaven in the next part of this verse, there's other places where you get glimpses of heaven in the Bible. Is heaven something we ought to be interested in? What's the answer? Uh, yeah, that's where we're going. It's home. Amen? And so we're headed home. What is heaven going to be like? Well, here's the reality. It's going to be way better than we can describe because we know the Bible. Those who got glimpses of heaven, including John, come back and go, I uh, can't do it justice. Right? Apostle Paul is like, I, I can't say anything. Right? All I know is this, he was stoned to death, left for dead, ascended into heaven, and when when he got back into his body, he got back up and went right back into Lystra to the people who stoned him and and started witnessing again. You know what that tells me? Heaven was sweet and he had no fear of death. Amen? You get a glimpse of heaven, it's like, hey, what's the worst thing the world can do to me? Best thing that could happen to me, so bring it on, right? And we need to have a heavenly focus. Some people say that people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I think we're so earthly-minded, we're no heavenly good. Isaiah 6 says this, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what? When we see God for who he is, we will be undone. John saw him for who he was and fell on his face. When we see God for who he is, we're getting into now we're gonna start getting a glimpse into heaven. And as we start to recognize him for who he is, it ought to bring us to the end of ourselves. The word there, undone, is destroyed. I'm destroyed. I've seen him and I've destroyed. It caused him to recognize his own sin and his own weakness. And we ought to be undone. Ezekiel chapter one speaks also of a glimpse into heaven. And in the Old Testament whenever you see the tabernacle remember it's always a picture of heaven and we'll get into that in the coming weeks. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as I mentioned before Paul was caught up into heaven. The word caught up there for Paul was harpazo in Greek, it's rapturo in Latin. It's where we get the word rapture. So Paul was the first Christian raptured into heaven. And he went up into heaven, he got a glimpse of heaven and he came back. He saw the fullness of it. It was beyond beyond human comprehension. It's far better than we can ever imagine. So the great tribulation on the earth is God's righteous judgment. That's going to be far worse than we can imagine. And heaven is far better. So after these things, at the end of the church age, here's what John says. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, come up here. And I love this. I love this. First of all, he says the first voice which spoke to me. Who's that? That's Jesus. Back in Revelation chapter one, verse ten, we see it's the Lord who is speaking to John. That's why, if you have a red letter Bible, all the letters in chapters two and three are in red because it's Jesus speaking. So Jesus calls John up into heaven. How good is that? Jesus calls John up into heaven. Ever wonder what the voice of the Lord sounds like in heaven? Here we have a description of it. It says, "Like a trumpet." Now, I don't believe that means it sounds like a trumpet. Here's what I, or makes the sound that a trumpet makes. But you know how clear and distinct and how stirring a trumpet call can be? You know, when they call people into battle in those days, they used a trumpet. When they called the children of Israel to gather together, they used a trumpet. And when the Lord spoke, it was that clear, that distinct, that heart stirring. The voice of the Lord was so loud and clear to John, it was like a trumpet that gathered all the people together. It just got his attention. It cut through all the noise. When the Lord speaks, it's distinctive, and you can't help but stop and listen. So, what did the Lord say to John? He said, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Come up here. Come up where? He, to heaven. John is being called up into heaven. So, what does this sound like when he is called up into heaven? Clearly this is a picture of what will happen to the church at the rapture. Here's John on earth. And then the Lord with the voice of a trumpet calls him and raptures him, brings him up into heaven. And again, this is right after the church age After this, after these things, Tauta, at the end of that, the very first verse we see at the end of the church age, we see John being raptured, being drawn up into heaven. 1 Thessalonians says this. Now tell me if this doesn't sound like what just happened to John. For the Lord himself would descend with him with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, that's where we get the word rapture, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This pattern is clear in my mind. You have the church age, seven. Churches, seven, the number of completeness. And at the end of that time, and again, at the end of that time, it's interesting also, very important point. The word church is mentioned 19 times between chapter 1 and chapter 3. John is called up into heaven, the representation of the church, and he is in heaven looking down upon the earth for the rest of the book. We see him describing the events from a heavenly perspective. And you know what? You don't see the word church ever again. Now, if the church were going through the tribulation, do you think the Lord would be talking about the church? What's the answer? But we don't talk about, there's no mention of the church. There are mention of saints, but I believe those are the people who get saved during the great tribulation, and many people will. But the church is no longer mentioned, and that's because the church is in heaven. So after dealing with the church, Jesus calls him up to heaven. He draws him away with a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And all this happens before the great wrath, before the beginning of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 6. As the judgment of the earth unfolds, John, a representative of the church, is in heaven looking down on the earth just like you and I will be. Again, to me this once again makes it very clear. God does not pour out his wrath on his children, but a wicked and rebellious world that has rejected him and his work of redemption on the cross. And then he says this after he calls him up, calls him up into heaven and says, I will show you things which must take place, what? What does it say? After this, metatauta, again, He's tying this back in to the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. They are future events, things which will take place after this. This very clearly means that God is describing to John events that were in the future. Does that make sense? Okay, the reason I'm telling you this, there are those people who are preterists who would tell you that John is describing events that happened 20 years earlier when Israel was you know, overrun and the temple was destroyed, and they're saying that that's what these events are. They're just you know, typologies and pictures of things that had already happened 20 years earlier. That makes no sense to me, and it does not fit the text. Amen? All the prayers are like, dude, I didn't come for this. But you know what? The Lord loves you guys, and it's okay, all right? We love you too, and you'll be really glad when we get raptured out of here, right? But here's the point. The point is, to me, this is very, very, very clear. The book of Revelation is not hard to understand. It really isn't. God's not trying to make it hard for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He helps us understand. And right here to me, it's so clear. He pulls John away. He comes up into heaven after this Tauta, And now these are things which are going to happen. They have not happened yet. Now, some will say, okay, I don't believe they happened in 70 AD, but couldn't they have happened since John wrote this? And we missed it somehow? Well, let me ask you something. Has a third of the world's population died in a single day? Have 120-pound hailstones fall from the sky that are on fire and crush everybody? Has there been worldwide darkness and extreme heat to where people are crying out to die and and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Are children playing by the viper's nest? That's what it says in the Bible. Is the wolf or the lion laying down with the lamb? Not for long, right? (laughs) Right? Has Satan been chained? Uh, No, not so much. I was having this discussion with a guy a long time ago. He said, well, Satan's been chained. I go, dude, that must be a really long chain, right? (laughs) Satan has not been chained. So here's the point. I'm driving this home because I want you to see that these events are future events. They have not taken place when John wrote this. It's very clear from this verse. And they have not taken place to this date. That means they're still coming. They're still going to happen after these things and again there's still future events why the fullness of the gentiles has to come the church needs to be raptured and we like john will be in heaven looking down upon the earth so a glimpse into heaven what we learn about god he rescues us before he pours out his righteous judgment number two he is the focal point in heaven he's the focal point in heaven and here's what happens verse two it says immediately i was in the spirit now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Was John filled with the Holy Spirit when he got to heaven so he able to understand what he was looking at? That's possible. Does it mean that only his spirit ascended into heaven and his body was left here? That's possible as well. I don't know. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians when he described his ascension. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up, harpazo, rapturo, rapture, up into the third heaven. So if Paul experienced heaven, and he doesn't know if he went there bodily or not, certainly I'm not going to try to define it. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. What we need to know is that he was caught up into heaven and he's getting a a view of what's happening in heaven. Ultimately, God knows. And Jesus did call John up into heaven and he's gonna call each one of us one day. Every one of us, he's gonna call us into heaven, whether it's all of us together at the rapture or when we draw our last breath. He's gonna call us by name and enter us into his presence. Now, I want you to notice something. He gets to heaven. He's in the spirit And he's in heaven. And what is the first thing he talks about? He's in heaven. Now we know descriptions of heaven. Streets of gold. Pearly gates. Mansions. Angels flying around, right? Crystal sea. Incredible. Far more beautiful than you and I will ever be able to comprehend. Because it's never been tainted or touched by sin. He created the earth in six days. He's been working on heaven for several thousand years. What do you think it's going to look like? But he gets to heaven... And what does John notice first? And behold a throne. The central focus in heaven is the throne of God. And what does he see? Not he doesn't run and go see the apostles who were martyred, though no doubt he would at some you know he will later, has now. He didn't run to his dead relatives and didn't run you know a lot of us say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to see grandma, and I think that's a good thing. I do too i do too i have family members i want to see when i get to heaven but guess what they're way down the line after jesus christ amen because the focal point in heaven is not our you know people say i had this vision my grandma was waiting for me i'm like i hope my grandma's i hope she's behind in line i want to go straight to the savior amen you know we're gonna hug jesus does that blow you away or what we're gonna see our savior face to face that's incredible and we're going to be around the throne of God, worshiping him forevermore. And people say, won't that get boring worshiping him? Absolutely not. It's going to be incredible. Amen. So John is caught up and he, he's in heaven. And the first thing he sees, not the pearly gates, not the streets of gold, but the throne of God. Now, before we take a look, a deeper look, I love to put myself into the shoes of the one who's either receiving the instruction or interacting with the Lord. And I thought about what it must have been like for John. Now, where was John when this happened? He's on the island of Patmos, which is really a big rock quarry prison. Basically, they're put to hard labor all day. It's a little island. It's desolate. It's hot, and he's on this in this desolate existence, where he's been in a place of suffering. But God's been speaking to him, and he's in that place, and he's been there for years. So here, you're on this earth living as a prisoner on a desolate, rocky isle of Patmos. For the past several years, your life has been a life of deprivation and hardship and difficulty. And in the midst of all of that, God again revealing truth to you, the letter to the seven churches. But after the letter comes concerning the churches has been completed, John no doubt writing it all down, probably contemplating what the Lord has shown him. He's sitting there on this rocky wasteland and John hears the voice of the Lord calling him up to heaven. And all of a sudden, he's no longer in the rock quarry, but he's in heaven. You think there's a little bit of a contrast between the earth and heaven? Guys, I don't care how nice your place is on earth. It's nothing compared to heaven. And where he was, was a desolate place upon the earth. And he found himself in in that moment in paradise in the presence of almighty God. He could hear the sounds of heaven. We're going to see next week. He can hear people worshiping like never before i wonder what heaven smells like you know it's going to be better than bed bath and beyond or anything else right it's going to be incredible going to feel the very presence of god again the pearly gates the golden streets the majestic mansions the angelic host the old testament saints who were martyred family and friends but they can't i can't even begin to imagine how beautiful and awe-inspiring heaven's going to be and what incredible contrast that is to the rock quarry he lived in, or the place that you and I live today. But again, what does John notice first? He doesn't even mention the streets of gold. You know, I believe you know in heaven, gold is asphalt. Amen. It's not going to be, ooh, look at the gold streets. I think we're going to be so blown away by everything else, we're not going to we're not going to notice them. It's not the gates. It's not gates. It's not the gold. Not the angels. Not the mansions. Not his friends. But the throne of God and the one who sits on the throne. You know, when the world thinks of heaven, don't they make it boring? You're on a cloud somewhere playing a harp. It's floating around, wings on your back, right? And whenever they think of heaven, it's always clouds and gates and St. Peter at the gate. I don't know where you get that, not in the Bible, right? But you've got all these images that the world has, but you know what the image needs to be of heaven? The throne of God. That's the central focal point of heaven. And we're going to see that everything else is— He looks at the throne. He talks about the throne. And then next, He's going to talk about what's around the throne, what's above the throne, what's by the throne, what's before the throne, because the throne is the focal point. But why is the throne the focal point? Because of who sits upon the throne. That's why it's the focal point of heaven. Heaven is not heaven without the throne, because heaven is not heaven without the God who sits upon the throne. Amen. So when you think about heaven, I pray you will leave here and you will have that burn into your heart that I need to be thinking about the throne of God. As Christians, we may think about all the other things and there's nothing wrong with thinking about pearly gates and you know, how beautiful heaven's gonna be. That's fine, it's wonderful. But our focus ought to be on the fact that we're gonna see almighty God one day. What an awesome thing. Now, the rest of John's description of heaven is all in relation to the throne, like I said. And he's fixated on the throne. So the one who went to heaven, what's he talk about even when he, you know, that's all he's talking about. It's the throne, the throne, the throne, the throne, the throne. Now, if he's there and his focus is on the throne, how much more should you, you and I have our focus on the throne? Now, one of the world's greatest struggles is recognizing who's on the throne. Amen? Atheists say there is no throne right there's no throne no seat of power there's no authority you know that you and i or the universe must answer to just live and let die there is no authority there is no throne the humanist says there is a throne and i'm on it right now how many of you will confess openly that you struggle putting yourself on the throne sometimes how about daily right I'm always thinking about me. I'm always on my mind. You know, I'm always, you know, I, I'm selfish. I mean, that's how we are in our flesh, amen? That's why we must die daily to ourselves. So the atheist says there is no throne. The humanist says, well, there is, but I'm on it. And then the communist, you know, if you go back not too many years ago and you look at all the communist regimes, I had a chance to go to Russia many times. And in Russia, they would greet the children every morning with good morning class, there is no God. That's how they started every day. And the God became Mother Russia, and whoever was ruling at the time, be it Stalin or Lenin or whoever it was. And if you went through Russia in those days, every, you know statues of Lenin everywhere, his pictures up on every wall. Why? Because somebody, they recognize there needs to be someone on the throne. And so if they haven't allowed God to be there, or place God there, then they will find someone they can put there. Children of Israel did the same thing when they rejected God and they chose Saul to be king. They need someone to be on the throne. Guys, there's only one worthy to be on the throne and there's only one who is on the throne and it's almighty God, amen? Nobody else. And again, I love the fact that our God is on the throne, that he is in control, that he is in charge and people's opinion of who's on the throne is irrelevant, right? Doesn't matter. Ultimately, the truth is that God is faithful. And it says there, and one set on the throne. How many? One. one. God alone sits on the throne, and he shares it with no one. Don't try to tell God to scoot over. <laughs> just scoot a little bit. You Just got kind of to squeeze right here. Isn't that what Lucifer did? He wanted to be on the throne. Why? Because the focal point was the throne. I believe that he was one of the angels flying around the throne. And he became envious of the throne. Guys, when we put ourselves on the throne, how does that work out for us? Not so good. But when he's on the throne and ruling and reigning in our lives, then boy, isn't life good? And guys, I'm not saying that life is perfect because we go through trials, but the difference is we don't go through them alone. And because we go through them because God allowed them. The fact that God is on the throne is a powerful declaration, not only of his presence, but his sovereignty. He is in control. He is the one who rightfully reigns as king of kings. His ability and prerogative to judge all of mankind is based upon the fact that he is on the throne. He can graciously forgive and restore repentant sinners and he can pour out righteous judgment because he is the one who is on the throne. And guys, he will be on the throne forevermore. So next time you get all worried about what's going on in the world around us and we ought to take notice and we ought to be you know, salt and light in this world. But isn't there a peace in knowing that God's on the throne? Doesn't it just bring peace to your heart? God's in control. God's on the throne. It's okay. So at the center of heaven, there's an occupied throne and the God of the Bible rules and reigns from the throne. He's on the throne of heaven. And again, that's never going to change. Here's a question I have for all of us this morning. Who's on the throne of your life? If it's not the Lord, to let today be the day of salvation. We need to be born again. The Bible says, tells us very clearly that he's called us unto a, to be new creations in Christ. He told the most religious man of the day, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He told the woman at the well who had been married five times and now was living with a man and was so ungodly in the world's eyes that other women wouldn't even go out and fetch water with her. And he told her the same thing, you must be born again whether we're the most godly person in the world's eyes or the most ungodly in the world's eyes, the answer is the same, it's Jesus Christ. And he needs not just to be Savior, but Lord. He becomes Lord when we put him on the throne of our lives. He's on the throne in heaven. He will be there forevermore. He needs to be on the throne of my life and the throne of yours. We must make him more than just Savior. He must be Lord. How do we put him on the throne? You surrender your life completely to him And you give him complete authority over every aspect of your life. That's not easy to do, is it? Don't we struggle with that? Even though we know he knows what's best. It's like being a teenager for the rest of your life, right? I mean, you know that you know your parents know good, but you still think maybe I know better sometimes. Guys, God knows better than us. And we need to obey him and put him on the throne and surrender our lives, not partially to him, but completely to him. When, he, when the trumpet sounds and he calls us home, will you be among those who are raptured into heaven? You only will be if God is on the throne of your life. And I don't mean that you momentarily take the throne back in a sense or you struggle with your flesh, but I mean is the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? If he's not, you will be left behind. The Bible talks about that. Two are walking down the road. One is raptured, one's left behind. Two are out working in the field. One is raptured, one is left behind. If you show up at church here next Sunday and nobody's here but like three people, get the tape of this text. Go back, the CDs will be at the back probably. Hopefully it'll be made before then, right? But here's the reality. There's gonna be people that have been going to church their whole life. And the church is gonna be raptured and they're still gonna be here. Because the church is not a building, it's the people. And it comes when we surrender our lives completely to Jesus Christ. Those who who will remain who reject the Lord and those who will be caught away, those who will be raptured or those who have surrendered their lives to him. Finally, our last point, a glimpse into heaven. What we learn about our God, he rescues us before he pours out his righteous judgment. He is the focal point in heaven and he is sovereign in his power and faithful in his promises. Now, look what it says there in verse three. Now he's gonna describe the one who sits on the throne. You ever heard a description of God before? Here comes one. Look what it says. And he, now notice that word he is capitalized. Why is that? Because speaking of God, right? Speaks of his deity. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. Now what in the world does that mean? In this verse, John gives a description of what he saw when he looked at the throne. And what he saw, and notice again, he doesn't describe dimensions. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say he was huge look like he's about 75 feet tall, big hands. You know, you don't see that, right? And do I fully know what God's going to look like? No. I know what Jesus looks like in heaven. We saw it in Revelation chapter 1. Amen. How about God the Father? We know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, right? What does God the Father look like on the throne? Well, here's one of our best descriptions into all of scripture, and here's what it tells us. It doesn't tell us earthly and worldly dimensions the description instead focuses on the glory and the glistening light that emanates from the throne he looks at the throne and what does he see he sees a bright and glistening light the word there jasper it it refers to in revelation 21 describes it as a precious stone as clear as crystal like a diamond so there's this bright white light coming off of the throne no doubt blinding to him but along with that bright white light is a sardius. So sardius or sardis stone is dark red in color. So he sees this bright white light coming off of the throne, but also this dark red light emanating from the throne. And it emanates so much, he can't even see what it emanates from. He can't even see the origin of it, which is God. But God in his glory, the Bible says he shines brighter than the noonday sun, right? And so when you look upon him, he can't even see through it, just sees the throne. As we're going to see next week, there's angels around about him. The elders around about him. People are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Just being in his presence draws people to a place of of nonstop worship. But as he looks, he just sees what emanates from the throne. And I think it's interesting that it's a white light and a red light. Now, in scripture, you see this white light, to me, is what they saw when they went to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. What happened? There was a bright light, right? The angels were there. And we know that, I believe, this is a picture of the resurrection. What about the red light? What do you think that might stand for? The shed blood of our Savior upon the cross of Calvary. Now, I have no proof of that. I'm just telling you what my personal opinion is. Now, again, there's another thing that this points to as well. But I want to quote a verse to you before i move on it says in first timothy he who is blessed and only potentate the king of kings the lord of lords who alone has immortality dwelling in the unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power he's in an unapproachable light and so these colors are emanating from it and i believe pointing to the cross of calvary and the empty tomb but they could also be linked to the first and last gems on the high priest's breastplate if you guys were here when we went through the old testament And we went through Leviticus. And you see the breastplate of the, uh, and also in Exodus, you see the breastplate of the priest. And there were 12 stones upon it. And the first stone was the Jasper stone. And the last stone was the Sardius stone. Because he is the first and the last. Amen? He always has been. He always will be. And he encompasses all of his people, right? He's the one who redeems us all. So it's not by chance that it's these two stones. And again, I believe it represents the fullness of his glory. And again, that he is the first and the last. And it says there, now look what it says next. You got this bright red light. I mean, you can imagine he's not looking. It so attracts him, he doesn't see anything else. No pearly gates, no angels. The first and focal point is the throne. It's God's attention. And as he draws near it, what else does he see? It says, and there was a rainbow around the throne. And the appearance like an emerald so in heaven god's throne is surrounded by a green-hued rainbow why let me tell you why because the rainbow is a reminder of god's commitment to his covenant with man this is why the red and the white makes so much sense to me the resurrection the crucifixion and now his promised commitment to us Every time we look at a rainbow, we remember his promise that he will never flood the earth again. Destroy the earth by flooding it with water. That was his promise at the end of the flood of Noah. But you know what? It's a reminder to God as well. Not that he needs to be reminded or forgets. But God looks down upon that rainbow and it's his commitment to man. And so here's all sovereign, all powerful, all knowing, almighty God upon the throne who can do anything because he's God. And at the same time, surrounding him is a rainbow that is a reminder that even though he is sovereign God, he has made commitments to man and he will never go contrary to them. He's sovereign, he's powerful, he's God, he's in control, but he's also faithful to his promises. And we see that here in this setting. And I love this. It's the promises that direct his sovereignty. The sovereignty of the throne says, I can do whatever I want because I'm, I'm, I'm God and I rule. His promise says, I need to fulfill my word to man, and he cannot do otherwise. God is all-powerful, and again, that rainbow reminds us of his promises. As our sovereign heavenly father, he has the right to do with us his children however he pleases, but he will never use his power to act outside his covenant promises. In his sovereign power, he could easily cast us away. Couldn't he? Couldn't he just change his mind and go, you know what? You guys are more evil than I thought. I'm done. Now, first of all, there's so many things wrong with that sentence, I won't even try. First of all, we can't be more evil than he thought because he knows everything. Amen? Can you believe that he who knows you best loves you most? I know I say that a lot, but I'm reminded myself of that and I'm blown away. He knows every wicked, vile thing you've ever done, every wicked, vile thing you've ever thought that nobody else knows about. He knows it and he still loves you. What a great God we serve. You don't have to hide anything from him because you can't hide anything from him. Amen? We put on these airs for man, but God knows everything. He already knows the evil things you're going to think tomorrow that you don't even know about yet. Right? And that's the God we serve. So he could, if he wanted to, cast us away in his power, but he won't because he promises that he never will. Right? See, we can trust in his promises. Just as we can trust in his power, he's all-powerful and he's all-faithful God. In his sovereignty, he could allow the enemy to tempt us beyond our strength or ability to resist. He could do that if he wanted, right? But he won't because, he says, that no temptation will happen to us except that which is common to man. And with temptation, he will make the way of escape. The point is, God can do anything, but he is always faithful to his promises. So when God promises you something, you can take it to the bank, amen? You can trust him. He's not gonna change his mind. The bright white light, the glory of his resurrection. The red light, his shed blood upon the cross of Calvary. The rainbow around the throne. God, the all-powerful and in control will never act outside of his promises. And he promises us, I want to give you a few as we close. He promises us that he's coming back. Isn't that good news? He's coming back. Now I know we say it so often. Oh, he's coming back. Yeah, he's coming back. And the Bible even talks about that the last days men will be mockers about his coming, won't they? Oh yeah, people been saying he's going to come for two thousand years. Well, we're two thousand years closer then. Amen. The Bible says to God, days is to a thousand years is a thousand years is to a day. So to God, it's two days. Amen? It's been a couple days. When I say I'm coming quickly to him, it's still quickly. Amen? A couple days. He promises to take us home. He is the sovereign and all-powerful and almighty God, and he is on the throne. He has done all things necessary to redeem us. What must you do to be saved? Accept his gift of salvation. That's it. Not your works. It's not your great grace. It's not how wonderful you are, how desperately he needs you. It's how desperately we need him. And so how are we born again? It says in Romans ten nine: if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. Amen. So let me ask you a question. If you confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what's going to happen? you'll be saved and you're going to heaven. Amen? Because God is faithful to his promises. I love the fact that the Bible tells us he'll never give us more than we can bear. That's a promise from God. Sometimes you're going to feel overwhelmed. I'll be transparent. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed right about now. But you know what? God reminds me every morning, I'll never give you more than you can handle. You know what else? He promises us that when we go through trials, we don't go through them alone. He walks through them with us. Amen? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. He's with us. Guys, when you read the promises of God, remember that he is faithful to them. He is unwavering in them and we can trust him because he is the all-powerful God who is seated on the throne in heaven. He's the focal point of everything. He's the God that we serve. And here's the amazing part, he's our best friend. What a great and awesome thing. How exciting this must have been. Can you imagine being John and caught up into heaven? So this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, we're going to go to a time of communion right now. And as we do, I want to make sure that communion is done in remembrance of the cross of Calvary. Jesus said, as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. So we remember the cross. But the, but the Bible also tells us that communion is for believers. It's for people who've been born again, who've already given their lives to Jesus Christ, who are new creations in him, who have trusted in his promise. Because we are reminded and we are commemorating his death, burial, and resurrection upon the cross of Calvary. Okay, so if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you've gone to church a long time. Guys, he's made a promise to you. If you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, if you will openly acknowledge him and make him savior he'll give you the promise of heaven but he must be more than savior he must be lord guys it's time to surrender our lives completely to him maybe we've been tap dancing around christianity maybe we've kind of had a relationship with him we go to church here and there it makes us feel a little better but then we walk away and we go back to our old life because we don't have the holy spirit living inside of us The Bible again says, I quoted it before, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. To become a new creation, we must repent. The word repent means to turn around. I was going this way and now I'm giving my life to the Lord. I'm no longer going this way. I'm turning and I'm following him completely. That's what it means to be a Christian. To be a follower of Jesus Christ. To have your life surrendered to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I just pray if anyone here this morning doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, they would not leave here without the promise of heaven, without the promise of eternal life, without your Holy Spirit dwelling inside them, without being forgiven. And so, if that's you here this morning, I'm not asking you to join Calvary Chapel. We don't have membership. But if you want to know for sure you're going to heaven, if you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and you're ready to confess him,